0: Esther chapter two. Look at verse number twenty one, and it says, "And in those in those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, uh, Bigthan and and Teresh, uh, of who of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember, uh, Ahasuerus and Xerxes is the same person. History records him as Xerxes and so you might hear me kind of go back and forth. I like to say Xerxes, it's a little easier to say. Um, but uh, Hazarus. Uh, verse 22, and the, and the thing was known to Mordecai, this plot that he, over, that he found out about, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out that, uh, therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book's, uh, in the book of the Chronicles before the King. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you'd help us this morning as we uh, look at this passage and uh, some wonderful truths to pull from this as we consider the the power of simple obedience. And Lord, I pray that you'd uh, bless our time together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today I want to talk about the, the simple power, or the, the, rather the amazing power of simple obedience. Simple obedience. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of times we look at... Um, biographies, or we look at uh, different characters in history that did just amazing things, and, uh, and we, we really esteem them, and, and rightly so. We should look at those, but, but you know, many times the real heroes are those that just have some convictions to just do right, day in, day out, and it seems mundane, and it seems just kind of, uh, you know, it's nothing spectacular per se, but, uh, but it's right, and it's honest, and it's, it's living a life of character, and... and um, and as we see here, we're going to see some things from Mordecai that I think are going to help us. We're also going to see some maturing that Mordecai has gone through. Even though we're only a few verses in, a lot of time has elapsed in this text that we're going to look at. But at um, but the end of chapter Esther 2, we find Mordecai basically doing his job. He's there in the king's gate. Now, the king's gate was a place where, uh, where uh, legal matters would be taken care of, uh, judges, judges, um, matters would be brought before the king, if you would. It'd be a place where maybe commerce would take place, especially uh, uh, for the king, for his palace. He would come there at the king's gate, and uh, you know, it was, just a, it, was a, it was an area of authority there. And, and Mordecai was uh, likely kind of a mid-range, mid-level, rather, uh, government employee. That's kind of what his job was, and, and um, he became privy to an assassination plot. He he overheard. It says that, that he sat in the king's gate. Two of the king's chamberlains, uh, they, they 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 were Ross, and they sought to lay hands on the king. He he was made known to Mordecai. He he learned of this plot and uh, assassination plot and these two chamberlains. The the chamberlains, their job was security. They're, they were keepers of the gate. They were the ones who would. Their job was protect the king. So so it's likely that they had uh, all the security clearances. They had the right resume. They had all these things to be in this position, to be in a place where they could actually carry out this assassination attempt. You know, who better placed to take out a president than the Secret Service, right? Or the ones who are in charge of his protection. It, that's kind of these guys. They're, they're in that Secret Service, so to speak. They're they're part of the keepers. And, uh, and uh, they, they, they'd been vetted for their job, whatever it is that they went through. Keep in mind, this is... Uh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. What was uh, what was his uh, uh, unofficial title? What was uh, Xerxes' nickname? You guys remember? King of Kings. I knew one person to remember. King of Kings. I mean, top top notch. This was not just some second class uh, nation. This was not some uh, uh, you know. This would be the the top of the top. They were militarily uh, second to none, really. Uh, well, they couldn't beat the greeks at this point but uh but they're they're really i mean they 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 ruled the world greece was the only ones they had not conquered and and so so this is not some ragtag uh uh, type of government these guys were vetted these guys they had to have had some organization and things and and so they were in a, a position here mordecai finds out about this now keep in mind xerxes good guy or a bad guy Not really a good guy, is he? I mean, very immoral man. We, we learned about how he treated his, uh, his last wife. We learned about this uh, really immoral beauty pageant to find the next queen. And um, uh, really not the most moral of men. In fact, even in history, we see him as, uh, you know, he wanted man worship. He saw himself as God himself, uh, the king of kings, if you would. And, and um, uh, bloodthirsty, power-hungry, proud. Uh, the list goes on about this Xerxes. Um, there might have been a part in Mordecai that, that might have been okay seeing this happen. But you know, we don't find that. We find him uh, recognizing this is not right. And he does what is right. Uh, his job was to honor the king. His job was to serve the king as, as one that, 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 that served in the gate, if you would. And, and he did what was right. He uh, tipped off the authorities. And so what does he do? Well, Esther, his, uh, his, if you would, adopted daughter, his, uh, uh, is actually his cousin uh, that he raised, who's now the queen. And so he, he's got kind of an inroad, if you would, and he, he lets Esther know, and the Bible says there that Esther brought the matter, um, uh, and Esther certified the king, it says, uh, in Mordecai's name. And so that means she gave Mordecai credit. And so what did that do? That prompted an investigation. We see that in um, verse 23. And they started to look into the matter, and it turns out that these these two were in a plot to uh, execute or to, to assassinate the king, and so they had him executed. This entire account it says was written in the chronicle before the king, and uh, so they 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 made a record of it. And then uh, this was a good work; it was a very timely message. And what happens? It kind of gets forgotten. It, they recorded it; they wrote it down, but then it kind of just goes goes away, and. There's really no recognition given to Mordecai. There's no reward. You know, you'd think you think you just spoiled an assassination attempt. You'd get some kind of, you know, something from the king. We're gonna find out later that 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 God brings it back uh into the into play. But uh, but you know, it's almost like uh, you know, here he is, I did the right thing, and I didn't get anything for it. You know, you ever been there? You did what was right, you expected, you know, at least someone's gonna notice, or at least there's gonna be something that's gonna come from this and and nothing comes from it. And uh and I want to talk to you about the, 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 the amazing power of just simple obedience this morning. First thing we see here in, with Mordecai is, or um, well, the first act of obedience, was a commitment to sharing what he knew. He became privy to some information that was very important because it meant life and death for another individual. And, uh, and, and he had a commitment, I have to share this. You know, in our society, if you know about a crime that's about to be committed or if you know about something's going on, um, if you were close to the situation, you don't do anything about it, uh, you know, you can be tried. You know what you'd be tried for? Anybody? Being an accomplice. Because you knew about it, you did nothing, nothing about it. And, um, you know, he had a responsibility uh, 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 to, to do something. He knew something, he knew this information. And the idea is, if I don't act on this information, people's lives are at stake. It could mean the demise of the king. It could mean, uh, uh, you know, this could, who knows what could happen to the kingdom after this. And uh, I have a responsibility if I know information, this information, uh, with this information, people's lives are at stake. Does that sound familiar at all? As we as New Testament Christians, there's some information we know. And people's lives are at stake. People's eternity is at stake. If this information is not shared. And so what did he do? He uh, did the brave thing. He did the right thing. He shared the information, this information that if it had not been shared, it would uh, be detrimental to the king, no doubt. And you and I, we know information far more important than that, than an assassination attempt. We know, we know that we have an enemy. For so the wages of sin is death. We know that it's appointed a man One. Die. and after this the judgment that that everyone is going to stand before a holy god and and uh if people die without jesus christ they're in danger of a place called hell they're in danger of judgment that's a, that's a lot of inf- important information this is very detrimental this is very very serious weighty matter and that you and i have and and uh, and here's here's the reality is is we're accountable for the information that we have what do we do with it when mordecai uses information um that would be uh uh, that, that, that could be damaging to the king, he was now accountable for what he knew. Simple act of obedience that was unrewarded. Uh, it was the right thing to do. And by the way, I want to say this. We shouldn't do what's right because of the outcome. We should never do what's right because of a reward or perceived reward. We should do what's right because it's right. All right? I, I, I love uh, certain passages in Scripture are just incredibly encouraging, but one in particular is, uh, "God is not unfaithful to forget your service and your labor of love that you've shown towards His name." God doesn't forget; God remembers. And uh, uh, it could be things unnoticed in this world and unnoticed in our in our lives. God takes note of, you know, and uh, and and so easy to discount things. It's so easy to say, "Well, you know, I tried to share my faith one time; it didn't go anywhere." Oh, what do you think? You're going to open your mouth one time, and you're the next, you know, uh, Billy Graham? Or, you know, all of a sudden, you know, no, no. It's, it's that simple obedience day by day, that one at a time, uh, with that information that you know. But this was the right thing to do. You know, we're going to find later, uh, we're going to find later, spoiler alert here in the story. Uh, by the way, how many of you read Esther this last week? One person. All right. Well, appreciate you reading Esther. Um What we're going to find later on in the story is that the simple act of obedience is what God's going to use later to bring up to 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 play a part in bringing about the salvation of a nation, to save a people. Uh, This is going to play a a key role. You just don't know what sharing the information that you know will do. A story is told of a man uh, by the name of Edward Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher, and he was actually uh, he was actually dying uh, um, near death, and his pastor preached a powerful evangelistic message, uh, a challenge rather, to evangelize, to share your faith. And he had a small Sunday school class of about 15 young boys. And, and um, he was burdened to go out and to visit the boys in his Sunday school class. And uh, he was a little nervous, stepping out of his comfort zone, to do it in this manner. But one of the boys worked at a, uh, a, a shoe, a shoe uh, maker's. Um, uh, shop and uh, he went and visited his young Sunday school teacher and he shared with him the gospel and uh, And that little boy, that young man got saved and his name was uh, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody later on uh, uh, had preached to over a hundred million people in his lifetime. They said, uh, they said over a million people made a first-time profession of faith in Jesus Christ under his ministry, through his preaching and of course he, uh, he traveled the world. He uh, uh, they said about D.L. Moody that he shook two continents for the Lord, and um, and he uh, in his along his in his ministry he began to mentor a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman, and they uh, they did some meetings together. Well, Wilbur Chapman took off, and he uh, uh, he, he got very much involved in ministry. Uh, uh, he oversaw a YMCA, and and there was a young man that he mentored there. Uh, uh, who was a clerk there for the YMCA, and when he went to take a pastor, he turned the work over to him. This young man's name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, a great evangelist of the 19th century, uh, who uh, was very uh, uh, animated. He preached hard against the, the wickedness of alcohol in particular, and, and he started mentoring a man that he brought along with him by the name of Mordecai Ham. No coincidence, that, or just a coincidence, that Mordecai in our story, but uh, Mordecai Ham, and, uh, and the two of them, it was said of them that they single-handedly uh, almost shut down the, um, uh, basically the alcohol industry in, in America, at least in the towns that they preached it. I mean, when they were in town, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the owners of these bars and these establishments would just, clo- uh, just close up because they knew they weren't going to have any customers when the great evangelist uh, was in town. Well, Billy Sunday and Mordecai Ham, Mordecai Ham uh, went on and and began preaching and just pleading, and he was preaching an event at a revival where he, uh, uh, he got up and he said, uh, there is a great sinner here tonight who needs, who needs to be saved, who needs the gospel, and there was a young man, uh, a boy rather, in that uh, crowd who, um, it resonated with him, he said, that's what my mom's been telling me, <laughs> and that, you know, that boy uh, said to his friends, he says, we need to go down, and we need to, to, to make a profession of faith, and that boy with his friends as they went down the aisle. His name was Billy Graham. I think of this Sunday school teacher and the impact that he made in just saying, stepping out of his comfort zone and saying, I've got some information and there are some lives in my path, in my sphere of influence. There may not be many people, but I've got to tell somebody. And, and, and who would have thought the impact that he was going to make in, uh, in telling just one little, little kid who had lost his dad at the age of four, uh, telling him about Jesus Christ. See, it's that simple obedience. It's not some grandiose thing. Uh, Edward Kimball never stood up in front of tens of thousands of people to share the gospel. He just went out and visited one person. And that's that's what we're talking about. The simple act of obedience has eternal consequences. That was Mordecai's commitment in telling what he knew. Look at uh, chapter 3. The story continues in chapter 3. And uh, look at verse number 1. It says, after these things... By the way, when you see a phrase like that, you got to pause and ask yourself, well, what things? After uh, uh, kind of shows the idea of, uh, of time. Well, how long? How long, uh, how much time has gone by? In chapter 2, um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Bible says that, that uh, 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 where am I, I have a typo here. I'm trying to figure out what I was saying there. But uh, <laughs> um, it says that he was in his seventh year. In chapter 1, Bible says that, uh, that he was in his, uh, the king rather, was in his third year of reign when he had his, the big parties and everything. And so, so now Esther is queen. We see that as he came to Esther in verse 22 and, and so forth. And so between chapter one and two, there's about four years time that has taken place. In Esther three, verse number seven there, it says in the first month, that is in the month Nisan, the 12th year of King Hazarus And so now he's been in for 12 years by the time we're in the middle of chapter three. So some time has elapsed, and Esther's now been queen for several years, and Mordecai's been working his job faithfully, day in, day out, and, and by the way, you know most of life is just kind of mundane. Most of life is just uh, after these things. Most of life is you get up, you do your job, and you come home, and, and it's just day in and day out, and it's mundane, and you know, it's kind of Hollywood that's messing that up for us, you know, they, uh, they, they try to depict all these grandiose things, right, and uh, you know, some guy who's got a nine-to-five job as a desk clerk uh, all of a sudden goes out and fights crime and becomes some superhero, or I don't know. You know, <laughs> they create this big, you know, and what is that? That's like a that's like a fantasy thing. You know, I uh, I, I I'm I'm born, I'm destined for greatness. You know, most of life is just kind of mundane, and uh, and it's in that in that um, uh, day in and day out that that character is exposed and who we really are and what we really stand for and um, but most lives kind of after these things, look at it again in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, did King Hazarus promote Haman? So now we're introduced to a new character, Haman, the son of uh, uh Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him, and set, him uh, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So this is interesting. He's a new character, and he's an Agagite. Uh, Many many commentators, and I'm I'm with them, think the Agagites were the Amalekites. Uh, Remember back, uh, King Saul was sent out to go and uh, kill the Amalekites, and he was told not to let any of them live. These were the sworn enemies of the Jews. By the way, all the way back in Deuteronomy, God tells Moses, these guys, these Amorites uh, or Amalekites rather, are going to be a constant thorn in your side. They're going to be the sworn enemies of the Jews. And and so fast forward, King Saul. Um, uh, I said Samuel, Saul would not, uh, when, when they, they defeated them, he was commanded to, to destroy them all. Not to even keep their cattle, uh, but to completely wipe out these enemies. Well, he kept the king. The king's name was Agag. And uh, here we have Naaman, the Agagite. And, uh, and that's when Samuel came to King Saul and he said, you know, what's the, the, the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? I, uh, you obviously haven't killed everybody. And, and he's like, oh, we kept them for sacrifice. He starts kind of uh, uh, backpedaling, trying to make it sound spiritual and everything, why he didn't kill everybody and why he kept the king alive. And, uh, and that's when God said, you know, obedience is better than sacrifice and, and, uh, and tells him, because you've rebelled against uh, my word, God's taken your throne from you and so forth. And, um, and that's where we have that famous verse, rebellion is a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. And um, uh, well, that whole story, well, these are them uh, I believe, and, uh, and these are the descendants of King Agag, the Agagite, and, and, uh, and, and uh, so here we have this guy, we're introduced to him, give a little bit of his background, who he is, he's the Agagite, and, uh, and he's put in a very prominent position. Xerxes, the king here, promotes this man, advances him uh, to sit above everybody else, uh, above all the princes, and, and in other words, he puts him, if you would, second in command. Now, Haman is a very wicked man, we'll find out in the store. He's a very wicked man. But that's going to surprise us because Xerxes is not very discerning himself. Would we agree? Right? uh, uh, So, so, you know, birds of a feather, what do they do? (laughs) They flock together, right? Look at verse number two. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. Now get this now. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. So not only did Xerxes promote this man, put him in authority, second in command, if you would, put him above everybody else, but he makes a new law, a decree, that anybody, whenever Haman comes in, uh, that everybody would bow and give him reverence. That was actually the law. So if you do not bow and you do not give him reverence, in this this context, what would that be? Breaking the law, right? Disobeying the law. Now, this was the king's command to violate this, didn't just snub Haman, though it did that, but it was actually a violation of the king's command. Mordecai here is now defying the law. He's breaking the law. And uh, which leads to the next thing. We saw, we saw Haman's um, obedience in, in honoring the king and doing what's right, uh, letting him know about this assassination attempt, but now we see... Uh, this next thing, uh, a step of obedience was actually a simple act of civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. He, he, he disobeyed the law. Mordecai obeyed the Lord by a simple act of civil disobedience. What was Mordecai's job? Remember, he was there in the gate. He had some kind of political position, and, and he was in a position where he was privy to an assassination attempt and had others that were in political positions there around him and, and so forth. And, and, uh, and apparently what took place was whenever he would go to the gate and he would, he would um, do his job or whatever the uh, circumstance was and Haman was there, they would all bow and, and, and apparently there was enough people there that Haman did not know about Mordecai not bowing, at least not at first. And uh, so he kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of blended in, if you would, yet he still didn't bow and he would stand there and others around him, of course, knew he didn't bow. But Why did he choose not to bow? Why did he choose not to bow in this circumstance? Maybe it was because he represented a foreign entity or a, or a foreign god. Uh, not, not, not a god that he would bow down to, if you would. Uh, maybe it was because he was an agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And for a Jew to submit, a Jew to bow down to one of the enemies of, uh, of their people would be, a, uh, would be an affront, if you would, to, to, to the god of those people. Whatever it is, it was, it was such conviction for Mordecai that he could not bow down. Now, Mordecai, to this point, has been a bit of a compromiser, would you agree? Uh, we looked at that last week, and, and again, he's a hero in the story. I'm not going to take away from that at all, but, but sometimes when you see a hero in the story, you start thinking that everything he does is the right thing. Remember, he tells Esther, hey, don't tell them you're a Jew. He, he, he wouldn't identify as God's people. Uh, remember when, when the soldiers went around and they were going to take these young virgins and... Uh, and have him enter this, uh, this beauty pageant of 400 young ladies. And, and when I say beauty pageant, that's the toned-down PG version. Uh, this was a very immoral thing that was about to happen. And he didn't stand up and say, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. He, he's he's kind of compromised along the way, but when push came to shove and when the stakes were higher, he could not in good conscience do this thing of bowing down. Obeying God was more important than obeying a human king. And I think that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 13, talking about the powers, uh, 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 submitting yourself to the powers, the powers that be ordained of God. And, and the idea is that as long as they're, they're exercising uh, uh, their authority in a manner of, uh, of, uh, of, of um, punishing evil and, and so forth, then, then, then they should be submitted to and so forth. But, but the higher authority is this, there's no power but of God. The powers that be ordained of God. It's what Peter and John were talking about in Acts 4 when they said, We'll obey God rather than men when they were told not to preach the name Jesus anymore. See, submission demands authority it doesn't always mean to necessarily obey it, it means to honor it, to respect it. And I think about Daniel. Daniel would not eat the king's meat and nor drink the king's wine, but you know what he did? He did it in a very respectful manner. This is a violation of my conscience. And, uh, and what he did, he didn't do it in a very obnoxious way. He earned the, the respect and, uh, the, the, uh, of the eunuch that was in charge of him, or the, the guy that was in charge of the eunuchs, rather. And um, he did it in a very respectful way. Even when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, and the king shows up he says, Daniel, are you alive? Remember the first thing Daniel said? O king, live forever. He wasn't mad at the king. I would have been mad at the king. You threw me in this lion's den. But he honors him. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and uh, they, were, they refused to bow down. They were not going to worship this, uh, this statue, this idol, uh, but they were so respectful in the manner. O king, live forever. You know, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. They were respectful about it, and they wanted to, 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 to you know, uh, appeal in that respectful manner. Paul, he respected Felix, he respected Agrippa, but he was not going to compromise the message of the gospel. As he stood before them, as the king said, uh, that almost persuadest me to be a Christian. And he said, I would not that you are almost persuaded, but, but, but uh, uh, you know, paraphrase, but completely, you know, I want you to be a Christian. I, I know you believe the prophets. Why don't you believe this report? Sometimes our fidelity to God requires us to disobey our authorities when there's a conflict. A simple act of not bowing was an act of obedience. It was an act of obedience to God. This act was not generated by hatred for the king. As we, as we consider this, we, we break this down. It wasn't, it wasn't that he was spiteful to the king. No. In fact, he honored the king earlier. It was not long ago that he, uh, he, let, he made known of this assassination attempt. He, he wasn't mad at the king. It was not a hatred for the king. And, and let me say, this was not an emotional decision. No, I'm not bowing down. I, I can't stand Haman. <laughs> uh, it wasn't an emotional decision. Yeah, Mordecai was acting on principle, not emotion. And by the way, that's, that's going to be key. How are we going to do it respectfully? How are we going to do it properly? We need to make sure that it's based on principle, not emotion. You see, when emotion gets involved, by the way, we make dumb decisions. Period. Be very careful when you get emotional. Not only was this not an emotional decision or based on hatred for the king, but it was an act, it was also an act that was not demonstrated in a private place. This was a very public thing, and, and uh, by the way, we're all tough in private. We're all tough when when we're in like-minded people. Wow, well, we're going to resist the government, you know. And uh, but uh, but it's a whole nother story when you're standing outside of City Hall. It's a whole nother story when you're when you're in a public place or when you're speaking up uh, to those who disagree with you. See, see, it's one thing to speak up when there are people that agree with you. You know, when I um, when I was invited to speak at the Interior Republicans. Um, I don't know what the group is called, but uh, I spoke uh, before them. And uh, I'll tell you what, I had great boldness. (laughs) Why? Because they agree with me. (laughs) Uh, I'm preaching liberty, and I'm preaching uh, 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 freedom and and those things, and everyone loves that. Uh, But uh, but it'd be a whole other thing if I was invited to go and debate somebody at the university. (laughs) Right? We're all tough and private. Boldness is not defined by what we say to people who agree with me, but it's defined by how how we... um, Conduct ourselves in front of those we don't, who don't agree with us. That's boldness. This is what this was the king's gate, where Mordecai sat. This was the king's command that was being violated. This was the king's man, his choice servant, the one he put second in command to the king, if you would. What's interesting is in chapter 2, Mordecai was unwilling to identify as a Jew. But in chapter 3, he was willing. In fact, verse number uh, 4, the very end, it says, uh, for he had told them, those around him, that he was a Jew. He was now willing to identify as, as, as one of God's people. Chapter 2, he wasn't so willing. In chapter 2, he, was willing to, he wasn't willing to disobey. When the, when the king sent people out to take all the young virgins, he wasn't willing to disobey then. But now in chapter 3, he's willing to disobey the king and obey a higher king. And, uh, and so, so we're kind of looking through this. What is this all about? Well, uh, again, what we looked at already is it was a simple act of telling what he knew. That, that made him, uh, these simple acts of obedience amazing. It was the simple act of civil disobedience in obeying a higher authority. And then thirdly, and this is, the, I think, the most important part, is it was a simple act that was a matter of daily resolution. This simple act of obedience was a matter of daily resolution. Look at verse number 4 again, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Now it came to pass, now, now as we've been looking at this, this is something that's been going on now for some time because uh, it, it, this is, is the implication as it came to pass, what's been going on of him not bowing and, and so forth, is that when it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, who's speaking daily unto Mordecai here? This would be his coworkers, likely those that, the others that were at the gate. Those others that were in this position. And it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. In other words, that act, of the the thing of him being a Jew was his reasoning behind it. He was a different. He was a part of a different people, right? They had a different God. They had a they had a higher authority, if you would, and so. Here's what's going on. He's being challenged every day to the point where they go to Haman uh, to see if it would stand. In other words, to see if, is this okay? Every day we come and we check in with you. Every day we bow down and we do your reverence. And and there's this one guy who doesn't do it because he's a Jew. Is that okay? In other words, he's saying uh, he's claiming a religious exemption. Is that okay? Is this all right? And, uh, and so what was happening was he was being challenged every day. Again, verse 4, when they spake daily unto him. How was he challenged? He was challenged, first of all, consistently. Consistently. And they're telling him, uh, Mordecai, why don't you reconsider this? This is something we're all supposed to do. Why don't you think about this? There are, there are dire consequences if you disobey, if you violate a command of the king. Why don't you, why don't you think through this? They, that every day they were challenging him. And by the way, temptation works in our life because it's relentless. It comes day in, day out, over and over. That's, that's how temptation works. It starts to wear you down. He faced it, uh, not only um, uh, consistently, but he faced it persistently. They were very persistent every day. This wasn't letting up day by day by day. And he didn't listen. He didn't, he didn't succumb to the temptation. He, 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 every day, he kept standing. Every day, he stood there. I think about Joseph in Potiphar's house back in Genesis. Every day. Every day, he would come in to do his duty. Every day, he was not going to sin against his God and against his master. Every day, Potiphar's wife was was after him. Every day, day in and day out. And uh, as he stood, she approached him every day. One person once said this, erosion can do in our lives what explosion could never do. See, many times we fall into these problems because just a little day by day, wearing away at us. You see, no one just sets out one day and says, all right, today's the day I'm going to ruin my life. No, it's day by day, little by little. It gets eroded away. What did this challenge produce? We see this challenge. It was uh, consistent. It was persistent. What did it produce? You know, as we allow patience, as we allow trials, as we allow temptation, uh, and we resist temptation, we stand for what's right. The Bible says, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be, per, which may be uh, uh, per, uh, entire wanting or lacking nothing. Uh, what does it do? It, it, it allows you to begin to grow. When you stand for right, when you stand for righteousness, you begin to grow in these areas, this simple act of obedience. When you're challenged day in and day out, it begins to do something in his life. It begins to produce something as he's patiently standing, and daily his co-workers are saying, Mordecai, What's wrong with you? Don't you realize it's just a matter of time before this catches up to you? Mordecai, don't you realize you know, you're going against the king? Don't you realize this? You know, it's not that big of a deal? Just, just bow down. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that hard of a thing to do. Just just bow down. We're all doing it. And you challenged every single day. Well, it starts to do something in your life. When you've made your decision, uh, resolve starts to take over. And you start, you start strengthening your stand, or you're going to succumb to it. One or the other. So what does it produce? It produces a greater resolve when you say no the first time. When you say no the second time, it gets a little easier. And we develop patterns. And and, uh, you know know what the easiest time to say no is? Today. Tomorrow, it'll be a little more difficult. Young people get this. When you make a decision to, to, to be pure, and you make a decision to protect yourself, from, from from the central culture that we live in right the easiest time is right now to say no because if you give in just a little bit tomorrow it's a little harder to say no and next week it's going to be much more difficult to say no and down the road you become an old man like me it's very much difficult to say no i wish i would have i wish i would have said no when i was 15 16 17 to some things that, that 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 I had allowed in my life that began to corrupt. Uh, it was so much easier if I just said no there and and stood rather than rather than having to, to to face the difficulty. And by the way, you know how addiction happens? You just said yes one time. And then you said yes another time. And they may not have even been back to back. Maybe I said yes then no then yes. And then and then it crept in another time then another time. And now I'm full-fledged addiction, and I can't say no if I wanted to. That's how it happens. But when you do stand and when you do what's right, it strengthens your resolve. Each victory will help you in the next victory. Day by day, he's saying no. And day by day, they're coming to him, and it's producing a greater resolve. Uh, You know what we'd say today? We'd say, I'm a Christian. I can't do that. Mordecai would say, I'm a Jew, I can't do that. I'm a child of God, I can't do that. This is not how God's people react. And, and, uh, and it's causing him to embrace his identity, determining what is really true, what is really right. And, and by the way, uh, our young people, when they face certain things in life, it's going to challenge that. Do I really believe this? Is there really buy-in? Am I deciding to, to stand? Am I deciding to go with the flow? The fact that he kept saying no caused them to look for him to begin to pay attention to him this not only increased his uh resolve but um but it increased the scrutiny they began watching him and they came to him daily 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 and uh and to the point where they finally went to haman I said, is this okay but you know as you begin to grow in the lord uh, people begin watching you. They begin noticing, you know, why do you do that? Why do you you not go there? And why do you behave this way? And they they might start asking questions, and they begin looking, and, 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 and there may be different reasons. Some may be a genuine curiosity. Some may be trying to find a fault in your reasoning, whatever the case may be. But there's an increased scrutiny when you begin standing for the Lord and begin growing in the Lord. But then they brought it to Haman. Now the boss knows of this thing that Mordecai has been doing. He's made very aware, and he, would, he wouldn't have known otherwise if he didn't take a stand. He wouldn't have even been on his radar. But he, here's what happens. Look at verse 8. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, that's chapter 3, verse 8, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them or to allow them. By the way, he kind of twists it, doesn't he? He kind of makes it a little bit more extreme than what's really going on. He took it very personal that he would not bow down to his amazing authority. Right? I am the great Haman. And this one guy... So what does he do? He kind of overreacts. He kind of paints it in a certain way that he says, King, you know, there are, there's a group of people that are dispersed in the kingdom... And they've got their own laws. By the way, that's a true statement. Remember, we mentioned uh, that God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. The law of God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, but probably the closest is right here. What law are we referring to? We're referring to the law of God. Why is he refusing to bow down? Because the Jews have a higher authority. Where does that authority come from? From the law of God. And so he brings up this thing because the reason for him not bowing down, verse 4 says, because he was a Jew. So he's telling him, and he's painting this picture, there's a group out here. And so what do they do? They, 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 they basically cast lots to decide uh, when they're going to carry this out. But they determine they're going to destroy, they're going to exterminate all the Jews. We have uh, an old-fashioned Hitler on our hands. And he wants to destroy all the Jews. And so they cast lots to determine what day this would take place. And, uh, in fact, verse 9, if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. That's kind of extreme, isn't it? And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business and bring it to the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of uh, uh, Datha, however you pronounce that name, uh, the Agagite. The Jews' enemy. Get that now. The Jews' enemy. Now we have a little bit more insight who these Agagites are. They're the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then the king and the scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month. There was uh, written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and the governors that were... Over every province and to the rulers of the people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, was it written, and the seal of the kings, uh, with the seal of the king, and sealed rather with the king's ring, and the letters were sent by posts, That's uh, that's the mailman, or we get the word post office, um, into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to cause to perish. Get this now, all Jews both young and old, little children and women, in one day upon the 13th day of the 12th month. Here we are, we're at the 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the 12th month uh, uh, is the month Adar, and to take a uh, spoil of them for prey. They, They passed this law, this decree to go and kill all the Jews. Uh, by the way, you know that's the mission statement, of, part of the mission statement of Iran today. Here we are, Old Testament. This is the Old Testament Iran, where we're at. We're coming back around, even today, they want to exterminate all the Jews. But here we go, all the way back there, the, they want to exterminate the Jews. They want to kill them all. And, and not only kill them all, but uh, notice what it said there, that they can take the spoil for, uh, for anyone uh, of all the Jews that they kill. So here's the incentive. You can kill all the Jews and you get to keep all their stuff. Can you imagine what that would look like uh, in America today if they just picked a certain group or a class of people and they said, all right, everybody, you can kill them all and keep all their stuff. Think about the looting that took place a couple years ago, you know, or I guess that was last year. <laughs> this last year has been a long year. And you uh, um, think, of, boy, if they actually incentivize looting, if they actually incentivize these things, uh, you get to keep it with no consequences. Wow. This became a very escalated situation indeed from his disobedience, from his civil disobedience. Now it's not just about one man's disobedience, but it's about an entire nation's identity. See how that escalates? See how how the consequences get so great? How does the chapter end? Well, the decree goes out throughout all the country. Whoever kills a Jew, you get to keep all their stuff. What an incentive. And at the end of the chapter, Haman and Xerxes, what did they do? Look at verse number um, 15. And the post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment. In other words, go out in a, in a hurry. Get this word out. Why? Because it's a huge province, twenty-six, one uh, 127 uh, provinces. It's a huge, huge uh, uh, kingdom. They hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan, the palace. Get this now. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. They just signed the execution of an entire people group. What do we find them doing? Sitting down and having a drink. Like nothing happened. Having a little party, a little get-together, what they've accomplished. Yet notice what it says. But the city Shushan was perplexed. There's great confusion. Shushan, of course, is where the palace is. Shushan's the capital. And they're, they're perplexed. There's great confusion. No doubt that confusion is going to go with that message as it goes out. Wait a minute. My best friend's a Jew. Wait a minute, we know Jews. Wait a minute, what what is this all about? We're just going to kill them for no reason? And, And this is the decree that goes out. Sometimes it seems like simple obedience has made a situation very bad now. The simple obedience to God made the situation way worse than he ever probably could have predicted. But give it time. Give it time. That's how obedience works. See, you might not see how a how, how simple act of just telling somebody what you know will work out, but give it time. It works itself out. They that sow in tears shall what? Reap in joy. But let's not be weary in well-doing, for in due season, that means there needs to be some time, a season, in due season we will reap if we faint not. You might not see how, how not bowing down works out, but it will. You might not see how, how the simple act of living for God day by day, day in, day out, standing for Him, uh, is going to have any influence, but you give it time. You know, 450 years later, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He lived that 33 years, three and a half years of ministry, Ministering to people, loving on them, helping them, and, and surely, man, Messiah has come. Uh, we have now uh, our King is here, and, uh, and and we're gonna we're gonna take over Rome. We're gonna put those uh, uh, get rid of the Roman occupation, and we're gonna take charge, and and finally, you know, it's all it's all gonna get fixed, and then and then he's crucified, and we think all this simple act of obedience for what? For give it time. Give it time and things about to change. And what I'm saying is sometimes the simple obedience, though it's, it's got amazing power, sometimes we're not going to see how it plays out until later, until the end of the story. Now, again, we approach some of these books, we've read the whole thing, but when we kind of dissect it or break it down, put yourself in the present situation that we're looking at, this seems pretty hopeless. It seems pretty helpless. And it, and it comes back to, to, to the question that we're titling this series, where is God? Where is God? And that's the question that can be asked sometimes when you do what's right, when you obey, when you're honoring, and, and it seems like everything's falling apart. You seem like those are against you. You seem like your co-workers are conspiring with the boss. You seem like, it's like all this stuff is falling apart when I'm just trying to live for God. Give it time. Give it time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together today and